calling the promise. We've been thinking about the promise of God, which is grace and new life, as we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and today we're coming to Galatians chapter 3. As we start this sermon, I'd love to just get you to think about this question. Have you ever done something your very best, but it wasn't enough? Have you ever tried your very best at something that was important to you, but it wasn't enough? You uh, went out for the high school basketball team, and you practiced all summer. You took a thousand shots a day. You went out, and you gave it your best shot, but you didn't make the team. Or you made the team, but you made the JV version of the team. Or you made the team, but you didn't start. You ever done your very best at something, but it wasn't enough? You, you, you had this dream school that you wanted to get into, and you put together all your uh, college applications, and you were careful to make sure you had all of the uh, academic stuff and the outside-the-classroom stuff, and, and you prayed and you hoped, but it didn't get in. You didn't get in. Or, or maybe you worked for that promotion at work, and you, you thought, I'll, I'll, I'll give this my best shot. I'll, I'm sure to get it. But, but you didn't get the promotion. Or, or maybe even something more serious. So your marriage is in uh, trouble and you, you committed yourself. Go to counseling and work on this and, and try to fix this. And you humbled yourself and you worked on it. But in the end, your spouse left. See, sometimes in life, our best isn't enough. My parents used to tell me, Todd, just do your best. That's all anyone can ask. But the truth is, is that sometimes people ask for more than our best, don't they? Sometimes our best isn't good enough in this world. Sometimes our best doesn't win the team, place on the team or the win the game or win the promotion. Sometimes our best isn't enough. I can work hard sometimes and do my best to prepare a sermon to proclaim God's word to you, but have it fall short. You can do your best at work and, and have a report not be what your boss wants. We, we can do our best in, in, in some of the most important areas of our life and fall short. It's kind of the nature of life in this world. Even as a parent, as we think about Mother's Day, uh, I'm a father of three. And for most of my parenting, I've tried to do my very best for my kids. But I know that in many ways, I've fallen short. And Recently, my kids have told me that. <laughs> I, have, I have adolescence. But, but as, as you grow, you kind of recognize uh, that all you can do is your best. And it's true in so many areas of our life, but it's true in our relationship with God. That in our relationship with God, we can do our very best to be righteous, to be holy, to fix up our life, to rise up to God's standard, to keep all of the religious rules. But in the end, the Scripture testifies that it's not enough. That's one of the primary themes of the New Testament. It is the primary theme of the book of Galatians in particular, that we can't save ourselves that we can't justify ourselves, that we can't make ourselves holy, that we can't fix our lives, that our very best in a religious work, in a spiritual work, in a godly work is never enough. It's part of being a sinful human being. It's part of being born into this broken creation. If you've been here over the past three weeks, you know we've been studying through this book of Galatians, and Galatians is making this point. This book was written in 49 AD. Most historians, biblical historians, think it is the oldest 
book in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas had two years prior to the writing of this book gone on their first missionary journey. They left Antioch and Syria, and they went through what is now central Turkey. Back then it was uh, the Roman province of southern Galatia. They went through these towns, Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, four little towns. And when they got to these towns, this is about 47 AD, Paul went into the synagogues and he preached the gospel. Paul was a Pharisee. He had training as a religious teacher. And it gave him standing in the synagogue. So he went in the synagogues and he opened up the scrolls and he taught from the Old Testament how Jesus the Messiah had come and died for our sins and risen from the grave so we could have a new life in him. But that message didn't really take off in those synagogues. And so Paul went out in the streets and he proclaimed the same message to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles came to faith. They, they established these little churches in these little towns of southern Galatia. And these people were growing in their faith and Paul was seeing fruit in their lives as folks who had been worshiping statues and rocks and, and gold and, 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 and temples now were worshiping the creator of all things, the God of the universe. Paul and Barnabas moved on about a year and a half, two years later, they were back in Antioch and Syria and they got word from the believers, the brothers and sisters in Christ in Galatia, that some other folks had come in and were teaching a different message, a different gospel, a gospel contrary to what they had taught. They were teaching that God's grace in Jesus Christ is not enough for you, that Jesus did die for our sins, that Jesus did rise from the dead, but Jesus is a Messiah, a Savior for Jewish people only. And so these folks, that if they wanted God's grace to be in their life, if they wanted to become children of God, if they wanted to belong to God's family, they had to be circumcised, they had to keep the Old Testament law, the Old Testament dietary restrictions, the Old Testament uh, temple requirements. They had to culturally become Jewish so that they could qualify to be part of God's family. And they wrote this letter to Paul and Barnabas and said, you never told us about this. What is this about? And so Paul and Barnabas, Paul wrote this uh, letter in response to their questions about how we experience this new life and this promise of God. This is what Paul calls it about eight times in chapter three. He uses this word promise, that God offers us new life, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did. Not because of our religious righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness and God's gift of righteousness in our lives through faith. And so the question that we're talking about as we look at this passage today is, are we saved by God's promise or by our performance? Are we saved by what God's done in Jesus Christ or by what we do? Is salvation, is righteousness something that we do in ourselves or is it something God does? The promise versus performance on your sermon notes. That's what we're talking about. And the first thing Paul says in this passage, this is Galatians chapter 13, starting in verse 15, is that God's promise is permanent. God made a promise way, way, way back to Abraham and to Sarah and to their descendant or their descendants. God made a promise, and that promise is permanent. A promise that if you'll trust me, if you'll believe in me, if you'll listen to me, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It says in, 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 the, uh, in the Old Testament law that the 
the Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And there was a promise in there that the righteous will live by faith. And that's a promise that we hold to today, is what Paul's saying. Let me read it for you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. It says, Brethren or brothers and sisters, I speak in, human, in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant or a human covenant, yet when it's ratified, no one sets it aside adds conditions to it. Now, the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and he does not say into seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let me give you a little background. If you are here last week, Pastor H.K. preached uh, on, on Galatians 3, 1 through 14. And in that passage, that's where uh, Paul goes back and he looks at the Old Testament law and he says that the cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in this book. That's what the Old Testament says. It says if you want to live by the law, the law says you've got to keep all 613 of these commandments or you're under a curse. But the law also says that the righteous shall live by faith and that Abraham himself was justified by faith. If you remember, we have 150 people reading through the Bible with us together, uh, and we've been reading through the Torah. We're now in 2 Samuel. But if you remember from your Bible reading, or if you've never kind of read through the Old Testament, let me just walk you through it. Abraham was a man that lived in Ur of Chaldees. God showed up in his life one day and says, I want to make you into a great nation, and I want to give you a new land. I want you to move from Ur of Chaldees to this promised land. And so Abraham believed God, and he moved first to Haran, which is in the Mesopotamia, and then on into, as God led him, into uh, Canaan land. And, and Abraham, it says, believed God, and it was given to him as righteousness. This was 430 years, Paul's point is, 430 years before God gave Moses the law. If you remember the history, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. His 12 sons went down to Egypt because of a famine after Joseph was sent to Egypt. They grew and expanded in Egypt. But over 400 years, this family became a nation over a million people, but they were also enslaved by the Egyptians. And they were under these heavy burdens by the Egyptians. And God raised up Moses, who came to deliver them from enslavement in Egypt and to set them free to be his people. When they came into Sinai, God gave Moses, through an angel, the law of God, and Moses gave it to the people as a covenant for how to live. But Paul's point is they were already God's people. Abraham was already righteous in God's eyes. Before, 430 years before there was a law, Abraham was already righteous. And Paul's point is the law, the, the Torah law, the law of Moses, the 613 commandments were never given to make people righteous. The righteous receive righteousness by faith. That's what Paul's saying. The law is not about 
making people righteous or making people God's children or helping people come into a covenant with God or helping people be part of God's family. The law doesn't do that. The, the law is not part of the covenant of grace. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying this to Gentile people who have now come to faith in Christ and are wondering, do we have to keep the Old Testament law, the, the ceremonial law? And Paul says, no, you're under a covenant of grace just like Abraham was. Can you imagine? He uses the analogy of a human covenant. He says if someone writes a human contract, a human covenant, and it is written and it is signed and it is sent to the court and is ratified by the court, and then hundreds of years later they come and they're like, oh, I just want to make this amendment in this covenant. They can't do that, right? It is set. It's done. Can you imagine going and buying a house, right, and, and, and signing a contract and then closing on the house and paying the money, and living in that house for 430 years, and then after 430 years saying, oh, I didn't, I didn't think there was supposed to be carpet on the stairs, you know? That, you, need to, you need to go back to the owners, and they need to tear that up and put some hardwood down for me. It's like, no, that wasn't in the contract. That isn't going to be done now. You can't go and change conditions on the contract 430 years after it's been completed. It's done. And that's Paul's point is that God already had a chosen person, Abraham. God already had a chosen nation. And God already made a promise to Abraham and to, and Paul says, his seed, referring to one, not many, saying that his seed is Christ. The promise was that one day Christ would come and fulfill visually, demonstrate what this promise is already in of God's substitutionary atonement, Christ's death on the cross for our sins, Christ making us righteous. And Paul's point is that all of us who are in Christ are in this covenant that God's made with Abraham through faith. The law was given 430 years later, but it is not part of this covenant. And he's saying to the Galatian Gentile believers now, you don't have to keep it. So the question is, again, the big question is, is it by God's grace, God's promise, or by our performance? And Paul's saying it's by God's grace. But then the, the next question, which you may be asking if you're a Bible interest, is, well, why the heck did God give Moses 613 commandments then? When I preached the first passage of Galatians three weeks ago, I had a friend of mine stop me after the service in the gathering area, and he's like, so I still don't understand why God would give all this law if we're not expected to keep it. And I was like, you got to come back, you know. <laughs> we're not done yet. And so Paul, in the rest of this passage, is going is to explain three reasons that God gave the law. And the first of these reasons is to reveal sin. This is so important. If you've ever asked this question of yourself, but just if you want to know what our covenant's about, this is so important. The, the law was given to reveal sin. You see this in verses 19 through 20. It says, why then the law? Why the law then? Paul's explicitly going to ask the question. He knows that the Gentiles, Galatians are asking, that we would ask, well, why in the world would God give all this Old Testament law if, we're not, if it's not part of our covenant? Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, that's Moses, 
until the seed, that's Jesus, would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So Paul, by saying a mediator, that's what happened. Paul is saying, God speaking to Abraham is more direct than God giving the law to Moses, Moses giving the law to the people. It's a, it's, Paul is, is kind of diminishing the, the nature of the law being as direct revelation as the promise itself. But his Paul's point is, is that it was added because of transgressions. That, that word transgressions in, in Hebrew, uh, in, in Greek, I mean, is parabasis. This is in Greek, parabasis. Parabasis means to go aside, to go around. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Most of the time it's translated transgression, sometimes offense, or sometimes uh, uh, a violation. But it means to go around. When Paul says, why the law? Number one, it was added because of transgressions. Paul means it was added to reveal sin. It was actually added to cause transgressions, to cause violations of the law. The law was given so that you all would break it, in other words. It was, call, it was given to cause transgressions. You think, well, why would you give a law to be broken? You know, what's the point of giving a law to be broken. And Paul's point is that sin was already in the world. Think about this. Since the time of Adam and Eve, every human being that lived on this earth was a sinner. And since the time of Adam and Eve, every person that walked, lived on this earth broke God's design. We sinned against God's design. But there wasn't a law of God and so there wasn't a breaking of the law. There weren't transgressions. There were sins, but there weren't transgressions. In other words, when Cain killed Abel, that wasn't God's design. God didn't want Cain to kill his brother. But it wasn't a breaking of the law of God because there wasn't a law of God. And so it was a sin, and people all sinned, and sin produces death, and so people all died. But there wasn't a breaking of the law. They had human laws, just like we have, but they didn't have a divine law. Think about the children of Israel. They're living in Egypt, and in Egypt, they have a law. It's Pharaoh's law. Pharaoh's like God. He's the supreme. He makes the law, and Pharaoh's law said that Hebrew people are slaves. That's what the law said. If you're Hebrew, you're a slave. That's what Pharaoh's law said. Your job is to make bricks. And if you complain about it, we're not going to give you any straw, but you still got to make the bricks. That's what Pharaoh's law said. And when the people, the Hebrew people grew more powerful, the law said, if you have a Hebrew boy baby, you have to throw the baby into the Nile. That's what their law said, right? But think about this. The children of Israel, they remembered the covenant. They didn't know very much about the covenant. They didn't know very much about Abraham. But they remembered that there's a God in heaven who loves us. The Pharaoh hates us. The law discriminates against us. The law is written to destroy us. And even though we have to obey this law because it's Pharaoh's law, there's a God in heaven who loves us. And so they cried out to God from the midst of their persecution, their enslavement, 
And God was gracious to them. He heard their cries, and he sent Moses to deliver them. You see, there was a law, not a, not a godly law, a, a, a human law, a sinful law. There was a promise, and they put their faith not in the law, but in the promise, right? Think about Moses. Moses himself, when he saw the, the Egyptian overlord beating a Hebrew slave, he went up, and what did he do? He killed that Egyptian. That was against the law of Pharaoh, and we know that was against the law of God. Murder, thou shalt not kill, is the law of God. But he didn't have the law of God yet. He knew he was in trouble with Pharaoh, and so he ran to the Sinai, but he didn't know he was in trouble with God because he didn't have the law, right? There's a difference between a transgression and a sin. That, that's what Paul's point is. And so the law was given to reveal sin as transgressions. It reveals that we are sinners. Before the law comes, we don't understand that we fall short of God's glory in every way. There was a time in the United States, just by illustration, there was a time in the United States when drunk driving was not illegal. It was always dumb. It was always stupid. It could always kill you or somebody else. But there was a time in the United States that drunk driving wasn't illegal. The first law put on the books to make drunk driving illegal came in 1910 in New York State. Before 1910, anywhere in the United States, and after that in all states but New York, you could get in your new 1909 Oldsmobile with a fifth of whiskey and put that thing down and take off, and you weren't breaking the law. You still were reckless and likely to kill yourself or somebody else and doing something that was dumb, but you weren't breaking the law because there wasn't a law against drunk driving. And so Paul's point here is similar to that. There, we did not have the law of God. And what the number one reason, first reason, that God gave us the law is, uh, hear this, not to make us righteous, but to reveal that we're not righteous, to show us that we're sinners, to show us that we fall short of God's glory, to show us that we need grace ultimately. That the first reason God gave the law was to reveal sin. Second reason Paul says that God gave the law is to reveal our need for a new life. You see that in verse 21. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? In other words, is the law a different way to righteousness and the promises of God a different way to righteousness? Are these two things alternative to each other or contrary to each other? And he says, may it never been. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. Paul's point is this. If God's law was able to make us holy, make us righteous, if we were able to fully keep God's law, and if it wasn't written in God's law, cursed is everyone under the law, then we could have just done it, Right? We wouldn't need God's grace or the promise of new life. We could have just done it, but, but God's law was never able to do that. God's law didn't make us new people or make the nation a better nation or make us more holy. God's law just showed us that we're not holy, that we need grace. And in that sense, it showed us our need for a new life. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. Some of them are God's moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, 
Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. Don't have idols. Don't worship other gods. Keep the Sabbath. There are, there are laws which are, are moral kind of universal laws. And then there are ceremonial laws. There are laws about worship and sacrifice laws that are distinctive to how God's people of Israel should interact with God and with other people that are unique to Israel. 613 laws. Paul's point is that every time someone broke one of these laws, one of God's people, Israel, every time they broke one of these laws, it was a reminder of what? that the wages of sin is death, that all of us fall short of God's glory, that all of us like sheep wander as an a indication that they need to find a new life in God's grace. Think about this. Every time the law says that, that there are substitutionary atonements, sacrifices for sins, every time they saw a sacrifice for sin, this happened twice a day, Morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, special sacrifices uh, for uh, uh, special seasons, and then your own sacrifice when you yourself sin. But at least twice a day at the temple, there are these sacrifices for sin required by the law. Every time they saw that, it was a reminder that they needed a substitutionary atonement, a vicarious atonement for their sins. So the law itself is not teaching people how to be righteous. It's teaching people how to experience a new life, how to, how to experience God's grace until, Paul says, until the promise came, it was pointing us toward the promise, which is Jesus. And it still does. Every time we fall short of God's glory, every time we get a conviction of sin, every time we read Scripture and we realize we're not loving God the way we should, we're not loving our neighbor the way we should, the, the answer to that is not, I can do it this time. The answer is, I need God's grace. Margaret and I, we teach a, a marriage class once a year. We have 15 couples in this marriage class. We're halfway through. We've got three class sessions left. But in order to take the class, you have to do this inventory. We've done this inventory ourselves each time before we teach the class. It, the inventory is not the most fun thing in the world to take. It has 200 questions it asks all these questions about yourself, about your marriage, about your family of origin. After you take the inventory, you and your spouse take it separately. We get these uh, uh, couple reports from the company that does this. It's called Prepare and Rich. And this couple report lays out your relationships, strengths, and growth areas, issues from your family of origin that make marriage relations difficult, all of this type of information. So, Margaret and I, for the past, I, we, I think we've taken this inventory 10 times. We've taught this class for the past nine years uh, in churches we've served, and then we also took it like 25 years ago when you used to take it in bubble sheets. That's a very long introduction to an illustration that I hope will be helpful to you. <laughs> this is not just a really long promotion for the marriage class, which it's too late for you to get in anyways. Um, the point is, every time we do this, I never look forward to taking that inventory. And every time I, I'm the one that proctors it so I can get the results off of the computer, every time I, we do it, I'm scared a little bit to death to open up my own report, you know, because I know it's going to show me, oh, 
You guys are not good at conflict resolution just like it has for the past nine years, you know. Every, every year it shows up, this is a growth area in your relationship. And it shows me things that I'm falling short, and mostly my wife is indicating them to me through the inventory of areas that we're not living up to our own expectation of what our marriage could be. But there's something really healthy and necessary in reading that report and hearing that feedback and knowing I'm not falling short. What is it? It's not, woe is me, I'm cursed, our marriage is never going to be better. It's not, I can do this, if I just try harder, I'll fix it. It is what? It's running to the covenant. When I know that I'm not good enough to make this what it should be, I have to rely on grace. Fortunately, my wife is a very gracious person, and we've committed to this relationship of love, even when we fall short of our own marital expectations. But that's how a marriage works, and that's how every relationship works. That's certainly how our relationship with God works. God gave the law to show us to rely on the covenant of grace. We're not going to ever get to the place where we don't need grace. And every time we covet our neighbor's stuff or every time we dishonor our parents. See, the thing is, is all this stuff was happening before the law. People were killing each other. People were committing adultery. People were coveting. People were stealing. People were dishonoring their parents before the law was given. Once the law was given, it says, this is not God's plan for your life. This is not God's design. You're not living up to God's standard. But here's the good news. God loves you and forgives you and is working your life anyways if you'll just trust him. And so the second reason for the law is that it reveals our need for new life. And the third reason for the law is it reveals the power of grace, our need for grace, what grace can do in our lives. Look at verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith this promise of new life in Jesus Christ, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Paul says the third reason for the law, the first is to reveal sin, to make sin transgressions. The second is to reveal that we need a new life to show us we can't do this on our own. Our best effort's not enough, but God's work is enough. And number three is to reveal the power of grace. The Scripture says that the law has shut up. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Now, my mom taught me not to say shut up, and especially in church, and especially on Mother's Day. I'm sorry, Mom. But it is in the Bible, so I, I'll, I, can, I can claim that. The Scripture has shut us up in our self-righteous pro posturing, believing I can do it on my own, this idea within me that I don't need anybody and I don't need grace, the law says you're full of it. You can't do that. That is not going to work. You need a new life. You need grace. It just shuts down that, self, that self-righteousness that we live by. It teaches us this, that you can't trust your performance 
but you can trust God's promise. That's the main idea that we're talking about here. So you can't trust your performance, but you can trust God's promise. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to people that he knows and he loves, people that he led to faith in Christ, people that he sees now turning away from faith and turning to religiosity, to self-righteousness, to Pharisaism. Paul was a Pharisee. He, he understood Pharisaism. And he understood the ironic nature of Pharisaism, whether it's Pharisees that Jesus dealt with or the Pharisaical type people that the Galatians are dealing with or religious Pharisees that live today who teach that righteousness is something that we do, that it's a performance that we maintain, that it's, a, it's an effort that we put in. And Paul says, it's not. So you see, the, the, the idea of the Pharisee is that the, the 613 laws are like a roadmap, directions, and how to fix your life. If you just follow these 613 laws, these commandments, you can fix your own life. And Paul says that was never the intention of the law. The law was never meant to be a roadmap on how to fix your life, directions, you know, God 101, how to fix your life. It was never, the law was always meant to point us to Jesus, who is the map. Jesus came and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And the point of the law is to show us we can't do this life on our own. We need God's grace. God's grace has the power to forgive our sins, to make us righteous in that sense, what we call theologically imputed righteousness, that God calls us righteous though we're not. But God's grace also has the power to transform us, to give us a new life, to impart God's righteousness in our life, to actually make us into people who keep his ultimate law of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves. That's the power of grace. And Paul's point is, our religiosity never had the power to do that, nor was it ever meant to do that. The, the, this law was never meant to be an alternative to God's grace. It was always meant to point us to God's grace. And so I say this to you guys this morning, that in church, just like in Galatia 2,000 years ago, in church today, we can get those things mixed up. We can begin to believe and unfortunately, begin to teach that it's about what you do. Just do more of this and less of this. Just stop doing this and start doing this. Just do the, your religious work better. And, and, and in that, people can miss the promise of God. It's like a mom, you know. I'm not a mom. My wife's a mom. I have a mom. But it's like a mom, you know, a good mother, as we've got some good mothers in the room here know, and a good mother is going to love their child. A good parent is going, to, is going to be able to see the covenant of that love beyond their child's performance. When their child has a good day and earns a good grade and wins the soccer game, the mom's going to wrap her arms around her and love her and tell her how special she is. And when her child has a bad day and loses the soccer game and lets in the winning goal and doesn't get the grade that she wants, their mom is going to wrap her arms around her and tell her how much she loves her and tell her how important she is 
and how God has a wonderful plan for our life. Because that's what covenant is about. And the scripture teaches, this is the promise, that God is that way. That God, the, the thing that makes us right with God is God's covenantal grace, not our performance. And whether we're flying high or we're falling short, God can wrap his arms around us and tell us who we are in him. That we're his sons and daughters, we're his children. He loves us. He's got a wonderful plan for our lives. And that's the gospel. And so when, when our focus gets off of that and our focus gets on, look at me, look at what I do, we're missing the point. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And what he's done is call you his own. Let's pray that might be so. Lord God, thank you that while we were yet sinners, that Christ, you came and died for us. You invited us into this relationship with you. You imputed your righteousness to us and offered to impart your very own presence into our lives to give us your own Holy Spirit as you give us your grace. Lord, so often we just get caught up in, in what we can do and how we can perform. And, 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 and so often, whether it's in our pride of what we do or in the desolation of how we fall short. We think it's all about us. We pray that this morning, this Lord's Day, this Mother's Day, we might be reminded that, Lord, it's your grace, it's your love, it's the way that Jesus gave himself for us, it's your empowering presence through your Holy Spirit. It's all you, that you call us your own and make us your children, and we thank you. Thank you, Lord, Lord that, that you have a promise for each one of us. Help us to live into that promise, into all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.